This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Secular history and religious history are intertwined and proponents have tried to interpret events of their own period in history as foretold in the Apocalypse. <clears throat> Henry Barclay Sweet, a conservative British theologian of the 19th century, lists a few examples of bygone ages in which writers tried to find correspondence between revelation and events in their own day. <clears throat> Thus, at the end of the 12th century, Joachim Fiori, who died in 1202, considered the beast coming up out of the sea to be Islam, which had been wounded by the Crusades. <clears throat> For him, Babylon was worldly Rome, and he identified some of the seven heads of the beast with rulers of his day. <clears throat> More than a century later, Franciscans of Paris saw the Antichrist as the pseudo-pope. The reformers of the 16th century identified the Pope and papacy as the Antichrist. Both Martin Luther and fellow reformer John Calvin did not hesitate to call the Pope the Antichrist. They knew. Still others regard the Apocalypse as a calendar of events that begins with the time of John on the island of Patmos in the year 96. They assign the seven seals and six trumpets to the early church and the Middle Ages, understand Revelation 10 and 11 as the time of Reformation, and apply the message of the seventh trumpet to the true church. The two beasts in chapter 13 are the Pope and Papal Power. The seven plagues are fulfilled in the French Revolution and modern upheavals. And the destruction of Babylon is the fall of the papacy. The variations to the method of applying the message of Revelation to history are numerous and self-defeating. These are the objections to this historical view. <clears throat> For one, the text of the Apocalypse does not lend itself to continuous historical presentation. History and apocalyptic literature are ill-suited. <clears throat> Second, if Revelation were meant to be continuously historical, the early church and successive generations would have been unable to benefit from the message that did not apply to them. Also, <clears throat> interpreters <clears throat> apply the book to the Western Church as if the church in the East, the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church, does not exist. Further, the adherents of the historical view often resort to trivial interpretations that are not only fanciful, but also dis dishonoring to Scripture. And last, the methods used to calculate epochs in history on the basis of numbers in Revelation are at best comical and at worst deceptive. The Futurist. The third view. The Futurist approach to the interpretation of the Apocalypse is that most of the book beginning at 4 verse 1 and we'll stop there later on belongs to the future. Proponents stress the prophecies in this book that, they say, will be fulfilled just before, during, and after Jesus' return to this earth. They are the vision of the throne, the scroll, with the seven seals open one by one, the seven trumpets, the two witnesses, the woman and the male child, the seven bowls, the great prostitute, the fallen Babylon. All these are events that occur before the coming of Christ. 
Indeed, the writer of the Apocalypse points throughout this book to the day of Christ's return. The prophetic element is an undeniable component for John writes the word prophecy seven times in Revelation. 1 verse 3, 11, 6, 19, 10, 22 verses 7, 10, and 18, and 19. John writes in the light of the great and awesome day of Jesus' promised return. And in this respect, his message is prophetic. The Futurist compares the wording of Revelation 1, verse 1 and 19 with that of 4, verse 1. Come up higher and I will show you the things that are to come. In the first two passages, <coughs> 1, verse 1 and 19, John stresses the things that must soon take place and writes down what he has seen of the things that are and will take place later. In the last passage, John is told, <coughs> Come up here, I will show you what must happen after these things. 4 verse 1. The division, according to the futurist, falls into two categories. First, the things that belong to the time in which John lived. Next, all the things that belong to the future. The futurist interprets the apocalypse literally and considers the second part of this book as a witness to those times of the end when cosmic issues are at stake and when supernatural forces shall be let loose. This comes by way of Merle Tenney in his book Interpreting Revelation. This approach to the apocalypse is eschatological and places the emphasis on the day of Christ's return. There are, however, a few problems with his futuristic approach. One is that it makes all but the first three chapters of Revelation irrelevant to the contemporary church. This comes by way of Alan Johnson, now emeritus professor at Wheaton College. Also see Robert Mounts in his book, his commentary, the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Another problem is that the prophetic emphasis focuses on Christ's return. No one will dispute that the church should eagerly expect his return. But this does not mean that the prophecies in Revelation will not be fulfilled until the second coming. If it were so, then the church from John's day to the present has not been able to apply the message of these prophecies to the time following the first century. Then the church must patiently wait and consider blessed those who will be present at the coming of the Lord, for only those saints will see the consummation. John, however, is writing to his contemporaries and to believers in successive centuries. He has a message for the entire worldwide church in any age. The book is filled with words of comfort for God's people in every place and in all times. Now, the idealist. The last method for interpreting the apocalypse is the idealist school. It interprets Revelation as a book of principles that contrast the victorious Christ and his people with a defeated Satan and his underlings. John delineates this contrast from beginning to end of the book from Jesus possessing the keys of death and Hades in chapter 1 to the devil, death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire in chapter 20. When Jesus taught his discourse of the last things to his disciples, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, he gave them principles that would give them and all believers throughout the ages the comfort and assurance 
that he is always with them. Similarly, John on the island of Patmos received not a vision of the church in subsequent time or at the end of time, but ideals that encourage believers in the spiritual conflict they face. He describes Christ as setting forth principles that will ultimately eradicate evil from the world, and he points out opposing principles that Satan and his hordes put to use. The apocalypse is not a history of events that have occurred in the past or a prophecy of events that will happen in the future. It is a book that fills God's people with comfort and motivation to endure to the end. Idealists stress the principles in this book so that its message is applicable to Christians of all generations, from John's time to the end of the ages. Hendrickson sets forth the purpose of Revelation and stresses the comfort that the militant church receives in its fight against the forces of Satan. He writes that the book is, <clears throat> quote, full of help and comfort for persecuted and suffering Christians. To them is given the assurance that God sees their tears, that prayers are influential in world affairs, that death is precious in his sight, their final victory is assured, that blood will be avenged, that Christ lives and reigns forever and ever. He governs the world in the interest of his church, he is coming again to take his people to himself in the marriage supper of the Lamb and to live with them forever in a rejuvenated universe. Believers who read the Apocalypse know that Jesus never forsakes them, but is always near to his saints. They know that they are the bride of and Jesus, they are the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. Therefore, as the Spirit and the bride petition him to come, Jesus assures them that he is coming soon. God controls history from beginning to end, and John reflects this in Revelation. Here, John does not specify particular events, but principles that apply to inherent tendencies and issues that appear in any age and place. The matter of time as such has little relevance in the apocalypse, because it is not chronological time, but an enduring principle that governs this book. And now what is meant by that principle? Here it is. Time is described in terms of 42 months or 1260 days. And by the expressions time, times, and half a time, and a short time. Time is presented as an idea in summary form that cannot be quantified in terms of years or centuries. Concludes Milligan, quote, We have no right, therefore, in interpreting the apocalypse to interject into it the thought either of a long or a short development of events. It is a representation in which an idea, not the time needed for the expression of the idea, plays the chief part. End of quote. Revelation borrows images, signs, symbols, names, and numbers from the religious and cultural setting of the author, and through them presents a message that is universal and abiding. The message is not bound to any particular time or place, even though these terms and expressions represent scenes taken from countries surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, and other places in the Middle East. Objections to the idealist school concern the lack of emphasis on history and prophecy, 
And these are legitimate concerns, for every careful exegete must see to it that no part of the apocalypse is neglected. Indeed, God's curse is resting on all those who omit parts of this revelation. Revelation 22:19. The idealist, however, acknowledges that many parts of the apocalypse lend themselves to historical settings but these may be applied to many epochs in the history of the Christian church. John was able to assign a number of visions to his own day, but likewise believers who have suffered or are suffering persecution even today have been able to see the situation mirrored in Revelation. In respect to prophecies, idealists teach that these are being fulfilled in the course of time and will be fulfilled at the consummation when Jesus returns. They know that what He has promised, He will fulfill in the time which the Father has set by His own authority. But they also hold that the Apocalypse does not teach that the second coming of Christ has become a reality. The book teaches that he will return as he has promised, not that he has come. The passage in 19 verses 11-21 is a vision of an event that will come to pass. A last word must be said concerning a contemporary idealist position. Not all interpreters hold to a high view of Scripture and some use Revelation as a document for specific causes. For these interpreters, the Apocalypse is a book filled with ethical principles that assist its readers in the day-to-day -day struggles in the areas of economics, race, and gender. They use Revelation as a source for teaching liberation theology, to aid the poor in their struggle against economic oppression, they find in this book information suited to combat racial discrimination and the suppression of minorities. Some interpret the apocalypse as a basis for, re for constructing a feminist theology. Thus they see in chapters 10 through 15 a picture of a community and its oppressors of prophets who are commissioned of revealing enemies in the community and of a liberation that appears at the end of the eschatological harvest. I call your attention to footnote 98 and where we have Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza who teaches at Harvard Divinity School not quite a conservative institution. She understands the message of Revelation as a vision of, here are her own words, liberation from oppressive ecclesiastical structures and from the destructive domination of those who have power in this world. End of quote. <clears throat> I continue. This emphasis stresses human needs and interests, but does so at the expense of neglecting the eternal verities of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. The message of revelation is much broader, for it points us to the victorious Christ and his followers who are more than conquerors. And now the hermeneutical interpretations. There are two distinct views on the timing of Jesus' second coming. Both concern the thousand-year reign of Christ. Does that period take place between the end of the present age and the judgment day? Or does the period refer to an indefinite span that is current even now? A commentary does not lend itself to a lengthy discussion of the, on the four millennial views, amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, 
and dispensational. Specialized studies do that very well. And in footnote 99, they point out a few. Thus, with due respect to other views, I limit myself to some points in the premillennial and amillennial beliefs. I'm going to take time out to tell you something what happened way back in the mid-70s. I had a class of about 30 students, and I was teaching the book of Revelation. And what I did, I put the class to work. I said, <clears throat> we're going to de deal with premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And I'm going to assign you alphabetically to one of these groups. So the first ten alphabetically were assigned to premillennialism. The second ten were assigned to postmillennialism. The last ten were assigned to <coughs> amillennialism. I also said to the class, now what you have to do is you study premillennialism, pre even if you're an amillennialist, you study it. And what you do is you come together and you appoint one of the, <coughs> your group to be the spokesman and he will have to give a presentation of about 20 minutes in class and then he will be asked questions by the class members and by the professor. Okay, everything was set. And this particular student who was an amillennialist gave a flowing presentation of premillennialism. He had it all. And when he was finished, he bowed his head and he said, Lord, forgive me if I made converts. Amen. <laughs> now, one thing that I have to say is I am not, N-O-T underlined three times, I am not interested in heat, I am only interested in light. We discuss matters as brothers and sisters in the Lord, respecting one another's views. So what, these are the principles as we go on talking about the millennial views. We can learn from one another. And these millennial views have been with us for centuries. Even some go back to the early Christian church. And there it is. I continue then with premillennialism. Jesus' return on the clouds of heaven inaugurates a thousand-year period of peace and prosperity. This is the premillennial view which teaches that Jesus returns before a thousand-year period begins. The view has many variations regarding sequence, number, and classification of believers, conditions, and lengths of time. It holds that when Christ returns, Satan will be bound and the saints will be raised and will reign with Christ a thousand years on this earth. This millennial kingdom will end with the final rebellion and the last judgment. The resurrected saints will include both Jews and Gentiles and they will be joined by those believers who are transformed to glory at the time Jesus returns. They will reign on this earth with truth and grace, though Jesus will rule over unbelievers with an iron rod. During this thousand-year period, the blight of sin and death will still cover this earth. Yet evil will be kept in check, righteousness will prevail, justice will be advanced. The earth will produce an abundance of food and even the desert will bloom. I call your attention to the amillennialist Anthony Hookemer in his life professor at Calvin. He wrote his book, The Bible in the Future. Please consult it. It's good. Proponents of this view 
encounter some difficulties. One is that the picture of saints who are glorified in body and soul, but living in a world that is still of <clears throat> marred by sin and death, fails to project perfection. How can saints live joyfully on an earth that is still groaning under the curse of sin, subjected to frustration with death in full control and the unbelieving world living in iniquity? Consult Romans 8, the verses 20 and 21. How can the perfect live among the imperfect and the sinless among the sinners? Our millennialists assert that at Christ's return, the saints are glorified and the non-Christians are condemned to eternal ruin. And these destinies are final. Next, the number 1,000 in respect to the end times occurs only in Revelation 20 and nowhere else in the Scriptures. Neither Jesus nor the apostles use a definite time reference when they teach the doctrine of the last things. And last, <clears throat> how do we know that the number 1,000 should be taken literally in chapter 20? If the answer is that this is prophecy, then we should turn to two passages in the prophecy of Ezekiel, where God speaks eschatologically. Here they are. One. Then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up, the small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the war clubs and spears. For seven years they will use them for fuel. Ezekiel 39, 9. And number two. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them, that is the corpses, in order to cleanse the land, Ezekiel 39, 12. Both verses use the number seven, which should be interpreted not literally, but symbolically. As a symbol, this number signifies totality and completeness of destruction and cleansing. In like manner, the number 1,000 in the Apocalypse conveys not a literal, but a symbolical meaning. It denotes the totality of time in which Satan is bound and the saints are reigning with Christ. It expresses not time, but completeness. And now, the second view, our millennialism. <clears throat> The second view is known as amillennialism. This term begins with the prefix a and leaves the impression <coughs> that, is pro this, that its proponents have no interest at all in a millennial period. Such is not the case. For these proponents indeed believe in a millennium, although not in a literal but in a symbolical sense. They understand the term as a period of undetermined length. Our millennialist Hukama notes that, quote, the millennium of Revelation 20 is not exclusively future, but is now in the process of realization. End of quote. Our millennialist stress the doctrine of Christ's kingdom that was heralded, heralded by John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus is king in this kingdom. For his enthronement speech record the words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. With the exception of Jude, all New Testament writers mention the kingdom of God. They portray the kingdom as spiritual. See John 18:36, where Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. Yet tangibly present on this earth and manifested everywhere. <clears throat> 
They know that Jesus eventually hands over the kingdom to the Father at the consummation. 1 Corinthians 15.24 Therefore they teach first that the kingdom is present now, second that after Christ's return the resurrection and the judgment take place, and third that Christ will eternally rule the kingdom on a new and perfected earth. The scene depicted in Revelation 20 verse 4 is heaven where Christ reigns and where the saints are with Him, seated on thrones. In numerous passages throughout the apocalypse, Christ's throne is always placed in heaven, and so are His people. Further, in at least two verses, the term soul signifies souls that are without a body. The passage chapter 20, the verses 4 through 6, presents at least one difficulty, namely the interpretation of the clause, this is the first resurrection. Premillennialists say <coughs> that if there is a first resurrection, then by implication there is a second one. And if the second one is the physical resurrection of the body, then we may assume the first one should be interpreted accordingly. A first resurrection is to be followed by a second resurrection, much the same as the second death is preceded by a first death. They conclude then <coughs> that there is a universe that it, excuse me, once more. They conclude then that there is an interval of a thousand years between these two resurrections. This carefully reasoned argument, however, raises the interesting question, what is the meaning and sequence of the verb come to life in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 20? If the souls of the ones who were beheaded, for be, came to life and now reign with Christ in heaven, verse 4d, then John conveys not the thought of a physical resurrection, but the passing from physical death to a glorified life in heaven. And those who died, but did not come to life, 5a, experience the exact opposite of the saints who are with Christ. Unbelievers do not live and reign, but are spiritually dead and with the second death are condemned forever. John writes about the unbelievers as a parenthesis. And then he continues and says that the believers who have come to life and reign with Christ have experienced the first resurrection. He adds that over such souls the second death has no power. <coughs> In the context of verses 4 through 6, the first resurrection communicates a spiritual resurrection. One commentator, Henry Alford, writes that if the first resurrection is interpreted spiritually, that is, the, soul, the souls who came to life, and the second literally, that is, the dead who did not come to life, then there is an end of all significance in language and Scripture is wiped out as a definite testimony to anything. End of quote. May I add, as a footnote, that is slightly enhanced. I continue. But note <clears throat> that John is not saying that the dead come to life. He only points out that souls come to life. The emphasis falls on the spiritual relation believers have with Jesus. Unbelievers lack this relationship. Even though we say that by implication there is a second resurrection and a first death, it is significant that John omits both. <clears throat> 
he places a spiritual emphasis on the first resurrection and the second death. For believers, the first resurrection is sharing the life that Christ gives them through his resurrection. As Paul puts it, quote, Romans 6, the verses 3 through 4. Oh, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And secondly, a quote from Colossians 2, 12. You have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When believers die, their souls continue to live in heaven where they reign with Christ. They participate fully in Christ's resurrection for, quote, the living and reigning with him is interpreted by the incorporation into him. End of quote. This comes from Philip Edgecombe Hughes in his commentary on the book of Revelation. Further, just as Christ was raised physically from the dead, so believers will be raised as Scripture attests. John teaches the physical resurrection in his gospel, but in Revelation, he enlightens believers about their spiritual resurrection. Only the believers receive everlasting life, while the rest of the dead live not until the thousand years were completed. Unbelievers are raised to shame and contempt. The Greek verb at Sesan came to life, occurs in the context of Revelation 20, the verses 4 and 5. It also appears as a singular in the parable of the lost son. That is Luke 15, 24, 32, when the father exclaims that his younger son is alive again meaning that his son experienced a spiritual rebirth. The father is saying he was dead and he is alive. And then we add the word again. It's a spiritual resurrection. The apostle John has a penchant for using words with more than one meaning. For example, the word world, cosmos, can mean creation, humanity, and people either for or against God. Often without notice, he switches from one connotation to another. He leaves it to the reader to understand the writer's intention of the particular word by carefully studying the context. This exegetical pursuit guarantees no unanimity among students of the Apocalypse but it does present a challenge to each one of the dilig to be diligent in the Word. I will stop for just a moment. Are there any questions that you may have? Uh, first, a humoristic note. We don't have to be dead serious and walk around with a long face. Mm -hmm. And we are now going to say, now, this is the straight and narrow way. And don't veer off to the right. And don't veer off to the left. For if you do, you're no longer with us. And we discover that you have heresy in your blood. Look, we go straight. Now, one of my dear friends and colleagues here on campus is a post-millennialist. And we would talk, and then I would say with a smile on my face, you are not far from the kingdom. <laughs> Postmillennialism 
says this world is getting better because the gospel is proclaimed everywhere. And I say, Amen. True. Compare it to the day of John, John Calvin. Hmm? Compare it to the 19th century. Now we have Billy Graham, who, some years ago, by television hookups, was literally blanketing the world, bringing the gospel everywhere. I still remember, this goes back probably to, oh, let's say the mid-80s. Billy Graham was in Korea and he had a million people in front of him. Time magazine devoted that much to it. What other person in the world is able to reach as many people? Certainly not a politician. Look, <clears throat> I agree with postmillennialists that the gospel is proclaimed. But now to say that the world is getting better and better. That is hard to substantiate if you see that we are sinking deeper and deeper into the morass of immorality. I'll give you one example. When I was in my last year in seminary in the 1950s, we as fellow classmates talked about a case quote, unquote. The case happened to be a homosexual. The word gay was not used. Gay meant to be happy and joyful. And then I asked the question, yes, we're talking now about a male. Are there also female homosexuals? No, never heard of it. Now... <laughs> having spent two weeks teaching in Colorado, there on NPR, openly, we are told, this program is sponsored by the gay and lesbian movement. We are in control. And that is not only one program. The whole Saturday morning, I've been told, is controlled by the gay and lesbian movement. And this is not just in the United States. It has spread throughout the world. Go to Europe and you'll find the same thing. Now, I'm only ta talking about one aspect. But we see ourselves going down and down. Chuck Colson had an article, I think the back page of Christianity Today, titled... Coarser America. Have you noticed it? Just listen to the radio. Listen to television. We call them swear words. Are used. As if to say there's nothing wrong with it. Do you remember in 1939, I know it was before your time, when Gone with the Winds was shown. And the last word of Red Butler was D-A-M-N. And everyone said, ah, No. How many times do you hear it in one day on radio and television? May I use another word? H-E-L-L. It is so common as if to say, well, that's part of our vocabulary. It is coarse and is unseemly from the lips of a believer in Christ. And this is the society you and I live in today. Now, postmillennialism and our millennialism are very close. I would say there is a difference if you had asked the question, what about dispensationalism? Well, dispensationalism and premillennialism are different. 
Well, they have the same structure. But what I find is that in dispensationalism, there is a movement afoot, and you are probably very well aware of it, called progressive dispensationalism. It is changing from classical dispensationalism and continues. Once, once you use the word progressive, uh, there is a progressive movement. And may I hope, if I, since this is recorded, I'm not saying too much, is that the progressives are coming closer. Here it is, to covenant theology. Anything else? <clears throat> no other questions. Then let's continue and talk about unity. <clears throat> we can be very quick on that. The author of the Apocalypse demonstrates from beginning to end a consistent unity in this book. He uses the same phrases and expressions in the parallels of the seven churches, the seven letters to the churches in the, in the province of Asia, there is the same terminology with respect to the contrast between the lamb and the beast, and there are similar clauses that appear in individual chapters, especially those in the first three and the last three. That is, first three, one, two, and three, and the last three, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two. Examples with minor variations abound. The phrase, will make war against them, occurs in many chapters. In chapter 2, chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 19. Identical wording appears at the very beginning and near the end of Revelation to show his servants that which must soon take place is found in 1 verse 1, but also in 22 verse 6. And in 3 verse 12 and 21 verse 2, the author has nearly the same wording. Here it is the new Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven from my God. End of quote. Identical wording appears more frequently in the first three chapters, 1, 2, and 3, and the last three chapters, 20, 21, 22 of the Apocalypse, yet other chapters have their share of parallels. These incidents support the unity of this last book of the New Testament canon. Nevertheless, Henry Barclay Sweet of the 19th century astutely observes that if we assume that the unity of the apocalypse is the work of one author, then we ought to look at the reappearance of symbolical figures. Consider the images, the imagery of death and Hades in chapters 1, 6, and 20. And note the recurring of unusual terms and forms in all components of Revelation for example, the abyss occurs seven times. Mid-heaven occurs three times. And the term mark, seven times. The repetition of sevenfold incidents in relation to seals, trumpet blasts and plagues is a characteristic hallmark. John's style, vocabulary, Word choice and syntax testify to the unity of this book. Now, I quickly must take up the theories, and they are three. The compilation theory, the Jewish writings, and the Christian apocalypses. Quickly going through this. First, the compilation theory. A brief look at the flow of thought may raise some questions, especially if the reader notices the visions in the Apocalypse. After the introduction in the seven letters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, there is a transition, then a segment of many chapters follows, chapters 4 through 11. And the last segment is the largest, chapters 12 through 22. Hence, Scholars ask whether the author has used other apocalypses in the composition of his apocalypse. There were such books available in the second part of the first century, written in Hebrew and Aramaic with translations in Greek. 
Could a Christian writer have taken material from these books and added his own apocalyptic material? Questions can be multiplied. But the issue centers on the use of sources. Following scholars of the 19th century, one commentator has revived the compilation theory that bases revelation on Jewish apocalypses and a Christian redaction. And I mention Josephine Missingberg Ford, who has written a commentary in the Anchor Bible series on the book of Revelation. She proposes that Revelation should be divided into two parts. She writes that Revelation chapters 4 through 11 are derived from the circle of John the Baptist because the phrase, He that cometh, reflects the expectation of the Baptist and his disciples. This part may be dated in oral form to the time of the Baptist and thus predates Jesus' ministry. The second part consists of chapters 12 through 22, which came from followers of the Baptist who may or may not have become Christians. It dates from the second half of the 60s before the fall of Jerusalem. And last, she writes that, quote, a Jewish Christian disciple of John the Baptist supplied the first three chapters of Revelation and some verses in chapter 22. The theory fails on several counts. First, it is completely subjective. Next, there is no evidence, either oral or written, to support the theory. Third, the linguistic peculiarities appear to stem from the author rather than from an anonymous Christian editor. Finally, although the author of the Apocalypse may have used existing material, he developed the book in such a manner that it bears the stamp of his own personality. Point two, Jewish writings. John relied on the Old Testament books of Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Daniel and borrowed their imagery for his apocalypse. He was also a contemporary of Jewish apocalyptic writers whose books were known in the days of the apostles. A number of features that characterize apocalyptic literature are peculiar to that period. Eschatology, visions, concealed messages, literary dependence, and pseudonymity. And at least three Jewish apocalypses show similarities with reference to the Messiah. First, Enoch. For Ezra. And second, Baruch. The first book, first Enoch, dates from the first century before Christ and is quoted in Jude 14. Among the topics discussed in this book are passages relating to the person and office of the Messiah and the righteous eternally dwelling with God, the Messiah and the angels. This book encouraged believers who eagerly expected the coming of the Messiah. The second book for Ezra, also known as 2nd Esdras, was written after the destruction of Jerusalem during the reign of Domitian. It reflects the pessimism of his day among the Jews. Nonetheless, it describes the reign of the Messiah, the coming judgment, the rebuilding of the new Jerusalem. It depicts the Messiah meeting out punishment, destroying his enemies and gathering the tribes of Israel. The third book, Second Baruch, was composed after Jerusalem's destruction and has an optimistic view of the future. The writer looks forward to the rule of the Messiah. The judgment at which the righteous are commended and the wicked condemned, the resurrection, the renewed earth, and a heavenly Jerusalem. Although these apocalypses share messianic features with Revelation, the difference between them and the last book of the canon are telling. John's apocalypse is inspired and is placed in the canon. The others are not inspired and lack canonical status. 
Inspiration is one of the marks of canonicity. Quote, The Apocalypse of John is differentiated from the Apocalypse of Baruch and or of Ezra, just as the book of Daniel is differentiated from the book of Enoch. End of quote. This comes by way of Henry Barclay Sweet. Number three, the Christian Apocalypses. There are a few Apocalypses that originated in the centuries immediately following the Apostolic period. The composers gave these documents the names of certain disciples, apostles. Here we are. The Apocalypse of Peter, the Apocalypse of Stephen, the Apocalypse of Thomas. The last two were Gnostic and were regarded as apocryphal, but the first one appeared to be canonical because Clement of Alexandria seemed to regard it as a genuine work of Peter. But in time, the Apocalypse of Peter was placed among the spurious and apocryphal books. In the fourth century, the Apocalypse of Paul surfaced as an explanation of the inexpressible things that cannot be told. 2 Corinthians 12:4. Sweet, referring to Augustine, characterizes this work as folly, which is no less conspicuous than its presumption. Of all the apocalypses, only the one of John has been received by the church as an inspired book that occupies a place in the canon. In it we find God's revelation as he brings it to a close, the sum total of God's written word. And now the acceptance in the church. Writers in the second century accepted revelation as coming from the Apostle John. They include Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo and his contemporary Irenaeus, who refers to revelation as scripture. By the end of the second century, the churches in the West had fully accepted John's revelation according to the Muratorian canon. At the beginning of the 3rd century, Tertullian likewise attested to the apostolic origin of Revelation. He wrote in opposition to Martian, who half a century earlier, about 150, had rejected the Apocalypse by leaving it out of the canon. Tertullian wrote, quote, We have also John's foster churches, for although Martian rejects his Apocalypse, the order of their bishops, when traced back to the beginning, rests on John as the author. In short, the evidence in the 3rd century overwhelmingly supports Johannine authorship. <clears throat> Objections to Johannine authorship in the last half of the 2nd century came from a group of people known as Allogi. They rejected the Logos doctrine in the prologue of John's Gospel and consequently renounced the Apocalypse. They ascribed the authorship of this book to Serinthus, the Gnostic. Eusebius cites Gaius of Rome who wrote, quote, But Serinthus, by means of revelations, notice the plural, revelations, which he pretended to have written by a great apostle, falsely introduces wonderful things to us as if they were shown him by angels. End of quote. Opposition to joining authorship of the Apocalypse came primarily from heretics and false prophets who wanted to discredit Christianity. The church in Alexandria accepted John's revelation, but after Dionysius became bishop in 248, he expressed his opposition to Kiliasm by ascribing the Apocalypse not to the Apostle, but to the Presbyter John. Thus, opposition to Kiliastic teaching with reference to Revelation 20 entered into the debate about the authenticity of this book. Nearly a century later, 
The Alexandrian church historian Eusebius in 325 also questioned the authority of Revelation and expressed doubts about this place in the canon. He realized that the church at large accepted the book as genuine, yet he himself was not hostile to labeling it as spurious. At two places, he qualifies Revelation's place in the canon by saying, if this appears correct, and if the opinion appears correct, the revelation of John, which some reject, but others rank among the genuine. <clears throat> by contrast, this con his contemporary, Athanasius, provided the church with a list of canonical scriptures that included Revelation as the last book in the canon. During the second half of the fourth century, ecclesiastical councils acknowledged the presence of the Apocalypse in the New Testament canon. The exception is the Council of Laodicea in 360, which omits the book from its list of, of acknowledged canonical writings. This council followed the Eastern Church of the fourth century in precluding revelation from the canon. But in other parts of the church, councils and church leaders recognized the Apocalypse as an inspired book that belonged in the canon. The Council of Hipparagius, held in Numidia, modern Algeria, where Augustine was present as the presbyter in 393, agreed on the inclusion of the Apocalypse. So did the Council of Carthage in 397 and 419. Both Augustine and Jerome confirmed the decisions of the North African councils. In the East, the church's attitude toward including revelation in the canon changed at the beginning of the 6th century. By 508, the Philoxenian Peshitta, that is the Vulgate in the Syrian church, contained revelation as part of the New Testament canon. When Martin Luther translated the book of Revelation in 1522 into German, he put it with Hebrews, James, and Jude among the unnumbered books in the canonical list of the New Testament scriptures. He listed all 27 books as part of the canon, but because he placed a valued judgment on each book, the four listed above were unnumbered. Luther claimed that these four did not preach Christ and the gospel of justification by faith. In the preface to his 1522 translation, he wrote, quote, here it comes, smile a little bit, will you? About this book of Revelation of John, I leave everyone free to hold to his own ideas, and would bind no man to my opinion or judgment. I say what I feel. I miss more than one thing in this book, and this makes me hold it to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. He changed his mind, that is, I end the quote now, he changed his mind on Revelation in the preface of the 1545 edition, which is the full Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. When he writes concerning Revelation, quote, we can profit by this book and make good use of it, end of quote. Indeed, he found the message of Christ in this book and therefore said, Christ is near his saints and wins the victory at last. However, Luther left the Apocalypse among the unnumbered books of his canonical list. John Calvin. <clears throat> now, what do we do with John Calvin? John Calvin considered the Scriptures to be the self-authenticating to be self-authenticating with respect to their divine origins, character, and authority. For him, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer confirmed and sealed the inspiration of the canonical books. Although Calvin never wrote a commentary on Revelation, this is not to say that he rejected this book. On the contrary, a look at the scripture indices of his commentaries and the institutes corroborates the fact that the reformer accepted the canonicity of the last book in the Bible. 
Calvin wrote commentaries on most of the books in the Old and New Testament, composed his institutes, preached daily in St. Peter's Church of Geneva, conducted correspondence with numerous people in and out of the church, and taught his students in the Geneva Academy. In poor physical condition, he kept a strenuous schedule that brought his life to an end at the age of 55. It is indeed amazing that he was able to do everything he accomplished in those years. Had he written a commentary on Revelation, he would have had it published. There's a footnote by way of Parker. He says, no copy of a commentary is known. And two, the contemporary silence is stronger against than any statement for such a commentary. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.